Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. And normally I don't start the show this way, but I need your help with something. As with any podcast, radio, or TV show, it's all in the ratings. And I would love nothing more than if you would take a few minutes before you X out of your podcast app to write a review. It can be for this episode or for the show in general. The more four or five star reviews I can get, the more likely the hosting platform like Apple or Spotify will be to recommend Cinema Sunday to other listeners. I would really appreciate you taking a few minutes to do me a solid. Thank you in advance. Now, before I get too much further, you know I like to do a bit of a current events update hoping to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. This week, President Biden ordered retaliatory strikes against Iran-leaked targets at seven facilities in Iraq and Syria. At least 16 were killed and another 25 were injured. This was in response to a drone attack from Iran-backed proxy groups that killed three American troops in Jordan last Sunday. Secretary Austin said this was the start of the U.S. response and that the president has directed additional actions to hold the Revolutionary Guard and affiliated militias accountable for their attacks on the U.S. and coalition forces. The three U.S. soldiers killed in Jordan were William Jerome Rivers, Kennedy Layden Sanders, and Brianna Alexandria Moffat. All of them were from the great state of Georgia. This coming week, the United States Supreme Court will weigh in on the constitutional provision that was adopted after the Civil War, which prevents former office holders who engaged in an insurrection from reclaiming power. This all ties back to the state of Colorado, whose state Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump was guilty of inciting the January 6th insurrection, therefore making him ineligible to be president again. The state was poised to remove his name from their election ballots, but then the Colorado GOP appealed the matter. It now gets elevated to the United States Supreme Court, which will be their most direct involvement in a presidential election since the 2000 case of Bush versus Gore. I can't imagine the court would want to wade into another election hornet's nest. In fact, this would be the perfect opportunity for them to follow the state's rights path they deemed appropriate in other controversial cases and kick it back to Colorado in which case Trump would not be on their ballot, but it would also open the floodgates for other states to follow. Just like when the court decided a woman's right to her own health care choices should be left to the state that she lives in, and then multiple other states joined in, and now in many parts of the country it's like living in 1953. I guess what's good for the goose is also good for the power-hungry narcissist who can't stop committing crimes. And this week we said goodbye to actor Carl Weathers who died on Thursday at the age of 76. Weathers first captured our attention as Apollo Creed in the Rocky films and went on to play other memorable roles in movies like Predator and Happy Gilmore. In 2021, he was nominated for an Emmy for a recurring role in the Star Wars-inspired series The Mandalorian. If you asked four people in different generational groups, such as Gen X, Millennials, Gen Z, each how they know Carl Weathers, they will likely give you four different answers. That is the beauty of a career that spanned more than 40 years. Rest in peace, Carl Weathers. Okay, it's time for a movie review. I follow the same template every week, so if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it all about, and of course, where you can stream it 
if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar worthy? And should you watch it? Or would you rather spend your time calculating if Taylor Swift can make it back from her show in Tokyo in time for the Super Bowl? Spoiler alert, she can. It's a 12-hour flight with a 17-hour time difference. She's got it in the bag. Just as a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies, and I sometimes go off on tangents about current events, and I rant about the things that irritate me. I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language, so please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Green Book. It was released November 16th of 2018. It is directed by Peter Farrelly. It stars Viggo Mortensen, Mahershala Ali, and Linda Cardellini. It was nominated for a total of five Oscars, and it won three of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actor. If you want to watch it, you can stream it on FXHD if you have a subscription. Otherwise, you're going to have to pay $3.99 to stream it on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, or Apple TV. So what is it about? This movie is based on actual events. It's 1962, and the story begins in the Bronx. First, we meet Tony Vallelonga, who is a bouncer at the Copa, a very popular nightclub. Tony is also known as Tony Lip, and he's played by Viggo Mortensen. He's a bit of a bruiser. Tony is the first one they call on to break up a fight or throw an unruly patron out on the curb. Safe to say, Tony can absolutely handle himself in a rumble. He's a certified tough guy. Just a few minutes into the movie, we find out that the Copa is going to be closed for renovations, which will leave Tony out of work for a couple of months. He's got a wife and kids to feed, so he's doing some interesting things to keep food on the table. He pawns an expensive watch and makes 50 bucks in a hot dog eating contest, but he knows that's not sustainable. He's going to need a steady form of income very quickly. Before we get too far into the story, it's important to explain the cultural climate of New York City in the early 60s. You've all seen West Side Story, so you know how this goes. The Puerto Ricans hate the Irish. The Irish hate the Italians. The Italians hate the Blacks, the Blacks hate the Asians, and round and round and round it goes. It's just a big, hot, steaming pile of racial tension. Tony and his big group of Italian friends and family are not at all fond of Black people, openly referring to them as spooks, coloreds, and eggplants. I don't believe they ever use the N-word, but you understand very quickly that the sentiment is there. A job as a driver for a rich doctor becomes available, and Tony gets an interview. This is when we meet Dr. Donald Shirley, a wealthy man who lives in a stunning apartment above Carnegie Hall. He's not a physician. Dr. Shirley is a musician, a pianist to be exact, and he has two honorary doctorate degrees in music. He's also black, and he's played by Mahershala Ali. 
Dr. Shirley and two other musicians known as the Don Shirley Trio are about to embark on a concert tour throughout the Deep South, paid for by their record company. And Shirley needs a driver who can also act as a bit of a bodyguard in the event they run into trouble. And spoiler alert, they're going to run into some trouble. Tony initially turns down the offer. He's not so sure he's comfortable working for a black man. And the tour will last eight weeks, which is far too long for Tony to be away from his family. But Don Shirley recognizes that Tony is the exact right type of man for the job. And he agrees to increase the pay to $125 per week plus expenses. For those of you who are wondering, that is the equivalent of just over $1,100 per week in today's money. It's definitely enough for Tony to get over his petty prejudices and agree to do the tour. To be honest with you, the first 20 minutes of these two being on the road together is difficult to watch, and not because of their differences on racial matters. We already expect that level of conflict. These two men are already on the opposite ends of the cultural spectrum, but it feels to me like the writers went out of their way, and I mean so far out of their way, to make both men behave so terribly that you can't help but feel an overwhelming sense of awkwardness as you're watching it. Tony, for lack of better definition, behaves like a complete fucking slob. He's ill-mannered, sloppy, shovels a disgusting amount of food in his face in between drags of the cigarette he constantly has hanging from his mouth. A wild bull let loose in a china shop would seem sophisticated next to Tony Vallelonga. And then there's Dr. Shirley. He's written as an uptight, condescending asshole who treats others like misbehaved toddlers. He's snobby, almost to the point of being hateful. And you're wondering, if he finds Tony so overwhelmingly offensive, why the fuck did he hire him in the first place? So yes, it gets off to a rough start. And there's a point where you might be thinking, Jesus, this is going to be a really long movie if these two don't find some middle ground. And just as soon as you've had that thought, it takes a turn for the better. I think Tony turns the corner the first time he witnesses the Don Shirley trio play in front of a crowd in Pittsburgh. There's no doubt that Don Shirley was an incredibly talented pianist, and seeing him perform is an aha moment for Tony. He starts to treat Dr. Shirley with a little more reverence. This guy's like a rock star. I'm in the presence of something great. He writes a letter home to his wife, Dolores, who's played by Linda Cardellini, stating that Dr. Shirley is genius. He describes him as, like Liberace, but better. Tony begins working a little harder to build rapport with Don as the two head further south. It's strange, but Dr. Shirley doesn't seem all that connected to what we would stereotypically think of as African-American culture. The first time he hears Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and Aretha Franklin, it's because that's what Tony is listening to on the radio. The very first time he eats Kentucky Fried Chicken is after Tony buys a full bucket and insists Don eat a few pieces with him. They start to learn more about each other, life, family, their childhoods. You can see them slowly starting to tear down the walls. And you can see through these conversations, they are starting to understand each other better. But more importantly, they are learning to trust each other, which will be necessary as they start to get further into the heart of this road trip. It's in Kentucky that they first need to use the book the record company provided to Tony before they left New York. It's called the Negro Motorist Green Book, and it was a guide to help black travelers find motels, restaurants, and gas stations 
that would serve them in the Jim Crow South. The fact that a book like that needed to exist makes me sick to my stomach, but thank God it did because it probably kept a lot of black people from being in extreme danger. That evening, Dr. Shirley decides to leave his hotel and go to a local bar for a drink and ends up getting beat up by a handful of rednecks. Tony is alerted and runs to the bar to rescue him. And like I said earlier, Tony is a tough guy and he's more than willing to take on the three guys beating up on Don. But luckily, the bar owner steps in and settles the dispute. From this point forward, Tony prohibits Don from going anywhere without him. It's become obvious to Tony that Dr. Shirley will be subjected to some pretty appalling treatment on this trip. Don is more accepting of his fate. He has come to terms with this life. No matter how rich or successful he gets, he will always be a black man in America. So this is his lot in life. But you will see that Tony starts to get offended on behalf of Dr. Shirley, saying to people, do you know who this man is? It's refreshing to see Tony come full circle. A guy who once would have gladly participated in the degradation of black people is now beginning to find the behavior repugnant when others do it and is now more willing to defend against it. Over the course of the next couple of weeks, Dr. Shirley starts to act as a bit of a mentor to Tony. He helps him practice his diction and provides him with tips on how to better fit in with a more genteel crowd. He also helps Tony write eloquent love letters to Dolores, which of course she loves, but she also knows they aren't entirely from her husband. It's in Macon, Georgia, where they have their first run-in with the law. Dr. Shirley once again heads out on his own, and this time, Tony gets a call from the cops who have detained him. Don has been caught in a compromising position with another man, which is a huge no-no in the South. Tony manages to provide the officers with some hush money to prevent Dr. Shirley from going to jail. And it's hard for him to admit at the time, but Tony really saved his ass, because an arrest under those circumstances would have damaged his career. Plus, Tony only gets paid after the Don Shirley trio performs all of their concerts as scheduled. So he's going to make damn sure nothing gets in the way. And it doesn't matter how low he needs to stoop. If bribing a couple of backward-ass cops is what it takes to keep the tour on the road, then he's willing to do it. As they continue on through the South, Memphis, Little Rock, Baton Rouge, Tupelo, Jackson, everything is going well. The crowds are delighted with the performances, and the two men continue to bond. It's when they get just outside of Biloxi that things turn south again. There's a terrible rainstorm making driving conditions very difficult. Tony is pulled over by a couple of racist cops, and it turns out Don isn't their only target, which causes Tony to start throwing fists. Both men are arrested and placed in a holding cell. Dr. Shirley insists he's done nothing wrong and should be allowed a phone call. He says he wants to call a lawyer, which the cops find humorous. Oh, sure, you have a lawyer? Okay, buddy, let's see it. Just daring him to use the phone. Dr. Shirley has a lawyer, all right. He calls the lawyer, as in the Attorney General of the United States, Bobby Kennedy, who then places a call to the governor of Mississippi, and before you know it, the men are being released. At long last, they arrive in Birmingham for the final concert of the tour. For the entirety of the trip, Dr. Shirley has set about trying to change the hearts and minds of people through his music. And in doing so, he allowed himself to be subjected to mistreatment at the hands of rich white folks who will probably never, ever see him as an equal. It wasn't until they got to Birmingham that Don Shirley decided he'd had enough. 
The trio was set to play at a high-end country club, and although they were very excited to have Don there as the musical guest, they wouldn't allow him to eat in the restaurant prior to the show. The club was whites only, so Don decides that if they won't let him eat there, then he won't perform there. And just like that, Don and Tony hit the road and head back to New York. Although it took the entire movie for him to do it, it is so satisfying to see Dr. Shirley finally tell some smug racist piece of shit to go fuck himself. They drive through the night and all of the next day trying to get Tony home in time for Christmas with his family. At one point, Dr. Shirley gets behind the wheel so Tony can get some sleep without them having to stop. Tony invites Don to have dinner with his family, but he declines. We see Tony's house filled with family and friends all thrilled to have him home after such a long absence. Don changes his mind and shows up at Tony's house, where everyone surprisingly gives him a very warm welcome, which is a little touch and go because you're thinking for just a split second, those tough guy Italians are going to react very badly. But if Tony Lip says this guy is cool, then we all say he's cool. There's also a sweet moment with Dolores, who hugs Don and thanks him for the letters. As the movie ends, we see real-life photos of Don and Tony, and we are told they remained friends until 2013, when they both died just months apart. Question 1. Does Green Book stand the test of time? The idea of two people from very different worlds suddenly finding themselves in the position of needing each other and building a unique relationship is one of the most tried-and-true themes in movie making. I talked about this exact same thing last week, two people in a seemingly impossible relationship finding a way to make it work. That movie was from 1938. This one is from 2018. So the theme has always and will continue to stand the test of time. Green Book is a well-crafted movie. And I think there is a true authenticity to what you're seeing on the screen. A movie about actual events will never be 100% accurate because they always need to add a little bit of Hollywood sizzle to it. But the other parts, the costumes, the hairstyles, cars, the music, it perfectly captures all of that. By the way, the music is great. When you're not watching this incredible trio perform, you're enjoying big band and chart-topping hits from the 60s. It's really a unique blend. There are a lot of people who saw this movie and felt strongly that it was just another white savior movie. And I'm going to say, of course it is. It's impossible for it not to be. It's written by Tony Vallelonga's son. So it is the story of Tony, the judgmental white guy who overcomes his prejudices to protect and befriend a black man. And that's okay, because we accept that's what it's meant to be. I don't think they ever intended this to be a deeply detailed observation of race relations in the 60s. There was some controversy that the filmmakers never spoke with Don Shirley's family or friends or even the other two members of the trio who were also on the tour. And I think that's by design, because they were writing a movie about Tony. And if you keep that in mind as you're watching it, then you're able to level set your expectations. Question two, is it Oscar-worthy? I can absolutely see why this movie was nominated for multiple awards, especially in the acting categories. It's a true story about a lifelong friendship and it does a nice job of capturing the relationship challenges they faced in the beginning. But I have to say that I wouldn't have voted for this for Best Picture of the Year. I think there were just too many good options to choose from. The other movies nominated that year 
were Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. This is one of those years where I could have honestly made an argument for every single one of these movies, but I would have voted for A Star is Born, The Favorite, and Vice before I would have voted for Green Book. Viggo Mortensen was nominated for Best Actor, but lost out to Rami Malek, who did a masterful job playing Freddie Mercury. I think Viggo did well in this role, particularly in the back half of the movie when we started to see some real humanity from his character. Mahershala Ali won for Best Supporting Actor, which I think is very well deserved. Mahershala has an ability to show an incredible range of emotion on his face, which is the key when you're playing a man suffering from so much internal turmoil. Dr. Shirley is stuck in this place where he's seen as something so much less than he really is. And there are times where just the look on Mahershala's face will break your heart. Question three, should you watch it? I think it's absolutely a worthwhile watch. Both Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali perform very well in this, although I do feel like it takes a while for their characters to hit their stride. I think the first portion is very surface level, so there's not a lot that they can do with the product. But once the movie starts to hit some emotional checkpoints, both of these actors rise to the challenge and show an incredible amount of range. At its core, it's a buddy movie wrapped in a road trip movie. It's like Driving Miss Daisy or Rain Man, two very different people stuck in a car together And it's a pretty big challenge to keep the audience engaged when the scenery is often so limited. Just like those other two Oscar-winning movies, some of the very best moments are those very simplistic moments of two people alone in a car. And it's the case of all of these movies, acting Oscars galore, right? Because it's hard as hell to entertain an audience while you're riding in a car. So go give it a watch. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 63 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org. And the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio. And if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations. So please be generous. Thanks and see you next week.